listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome to the show. Happy Wednesday, everybody. How's everybody doing? Oh, happy Tuesday. We're not even at Wednesday yet. I'm rushing. Happy Tuesday. How's everyone doing? We have a great show to you for you today. We are going to grill the defense minister on her new plan to keep Canada safe in the north to update NORAD, the defense warning system. Look, it's good that she's doing it. Here's the headline. $4.9 billion over six years? Yes, good. It's it's money already booked. I get that. $40 billion over 20 years? Okay, it's probably needed. But we have no idea how long it will take to get this stuff up and running. And in the meantime, we're vulnerable. Hypersonic missiles, high-impact cruise missiles from North Korea, China, Russia can penetrate that. The military's admitted it. So instead of saying that we're ready, instead of saying this shows how ready we are, we are way behind, the threats have changed, and we'd like to know when the new security system is up and running. It's, it's great to buy fire insurance, but if I said it's going to come online in four years, make sure you don't have a fire in the next four years, otherwise you're not insured, you're like, what? No, your smoke detectors won't work for four years, but when they do, they're going to be the best smoke detectors in the world. So we'll find out. So uh, Anita Anand will join us the defense minister. And I'm going to speak to a father. This is the most, look, it's going to break your heart, but you got to listen to it. His 17 year old son was a victim of a sex extortion scheme. Like within three hours, his son was tricked into sending compromising pictures and killed himself. 17 years old, good Manitoba boy. It's heartbreaking. But if you don't know about this, it's going to break your heart. You got to. You got to. This is a big thing. This is happening all over the place. And the uh, Ottawa police chief is going to join us, the interim police chief. And I'll tell you why. Because there's going to be more freedom protests, apparently. I don't know why. Because yesterday, all the mandates essentially were, were, were lifted. So if you're unvaccinated... You can go back to work. Now, I don't know what they're still protesting, what they're, what freedoms that they're worried about. And how, by the way, did freedom take over the fact that over 40,000 Canadians died of COVID? Why does nobody mention that? Why does no one talk to families like the family of my Uncle Charlie, who lost their dad to COVID? Healthy guy. Why does no one talk about the victims of COVID? Why does no one talk about the healthcare workers who work their butts off? Why does no one remember two years ago when we were slamming the government for being too slow to get vaccines? Why does no one remember the miracle of the fact that we got a vaccine? Millions of people have died from COVID. And now the whole thing is, oh, these mandates were, it was all a big government scam of control. And here's the problem. And I said this earlier this week. The governments of all levels have to be careful because they are in the process of snatching the defeat out of the jaws of victory. You won. You beat COVID. It's back to normal. But you did it by following the science. And the science matters. Facts 
matter. We are living in an age where facts are under assault, that anyone with a conspiracy theory thinks they have the right to not only say it, but to give platform to it and to be believed and to to say things that make no sense. And I say this advisedly. I say it because the president of the United States, Donald Trump, did this to try to overturn an election. The big lie. This is the fourth day of hearings in Washington about it, and it's important to acknowledge it. The hearings have shown that it was a lie that the president led an attempted insurrection to overthrow an election he knew was false. His own attorney general, Bill Barr, said it was BS, said there was nothing. There was no evidence. His own lawyers testified. These are Republicans. These are people who love Donald Trump, who testified that there was no evidence that the voting machines were fraudulent, no evidence that that election was uh, unfair, nothing. And they told the president and he knew it and he continued to try to overturn an election. He promoted the lie. He tried to force his vice president to overturn an election when there was no constitutional way to do it. And he continues to lie about it. Then he collected money as the as the inquiry and the investigation have heard to try to overturn it. And that money was then funneled to Trump hotels and other places. And the committee is trying to prove that that was fraud. They believe it was. So, look, we are living in an age where the former president doesn't care about facts. That's a fact. Listen to, this isn't my opinion. This isn't, oh, you're an anti-Trump or a pro-Trump. I don't care about that. I don't have any skin in the game in American politics. But the most powerful democracy in the world was almost overturned by fraudulent, phony, factless, conspiracy, devastating insurrectionists. And we've seen stuff like that here. And during the pandemic, the line I held, and I think 90% of Canadians held, was let's trust the science. And I think governments, municipally, provincially, and federally, all said, let's have evidence-based science. And I get it. And I think that's smart. And they won on that. They convinced people to get vaccinated. And I think that's why we won. We being all of us won over COVID. That's why our lives are back to normal. All of us. Doesn't matter what your political stripe is. But now, and I said this during the airport, and I said this to the Minister of Transport, when on Monday they finally decided to lift mandates, I said, what is the data? You told us to follow the data on on scientific and the science to impose the mandates, then show us the data when you're getting rid of the mandates. And they didn't. I don't know why they lifted them today and not a month ago, and they didn't show the data. And I think that's a big mistake, because when you don't show the science, it becomes politics. And once it becomes politics, the very people you argued with for two years who did not base their decisions on science, the anti-vax group, are saying, well, exactly this. There was no science at all. It's all politics. And that's a mistake. And then someone sent me something this morning that I want to talk to you about, because it's graduation season. It's grad season. And at a local high school here in Ottawa called Lisger, and there's others, apparently the school board there is only allowing graduates to invite two guests. That's it. Two guests. Why? Because they said in a note that I saw, it was sent to me. I'm not going to name the person, but they said that they have concerns that They have two ceremonies with two guests only. In the interest of safety, we're only permitting two guests per student in order to maintain social distances and mitigate the possible spread of COVID. 
There is no reason to do this. The school board is wrong. I'm sorry, the school is wrong. COVID restrictions have been lifted in Ontario. All capacity limits have been lifted federally and provincially. How a high school can deny young children who have graduated and finally, after two years of COVID, want to share their graduation more than them with just mom and dad. What about with grandfather? What about with grandmother? What about with siblings? Nope. We are out of, they use this word, out of an abundance of caution. That's not caution. That's paranoia. You cannot follow the this, this science and the public health regulations throughout the pandemic, and they are right to do it. They are right to say, we're following public health regulations. Please abide by them. And then when the public health regulations change and allow full capacity to tell people, we're not following those anymore, we're going rogue, and we're going to be more concerned. You are punishing children. That means the far right who don't trust this are so conspiracy minded, they don't trust the science. But now you get the far left on the other side that are so paranoid that they too aren't following the regulations. And that undermines the whole process. If you follow public health regulations, follow them to have the vaccines and the mandates, but you better follow them to get rid of them. Or you're being paranoid and you're punishing and you're allowing the very people you fought against who you think don't believe in science and don't to say, see, it was about politics all the time. And now there's going to be high school kids who suffered that can't celebrate their graduation with their grandparents. And that is a pathetic shame. And they should change it and be consistent with their own ideas. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. There you go. Welcome back to the program, everyone. I don't know if you've seen the National Post. It's running an excerpt from a book. James Lawton's book about uh, the Freedom Convoy, the trucker protest, politically the name matters. If you support it, it's the Freedom Convoy. If you're an objective observer, it was just a trucker protest. And, and you know, I was part of that a lot, and the Ottawa police were a big part of that. There's hearings into it. There's the Emergencies Act. And now we know that um, at the end of June, more protests are going to start again in Ottawa, there's big plans for more protests because there's a 28-year veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, a guy named James Todd, who has walked across Canada over 4,200 kilometers. He's been on this show for about half an hour. As you know, I interviewed him on the show. Uh, and he's going to arrive. And that will, around him, there's going to be more protests. Now, what are these protests about? Um, the vaccine mandates have lifted, so people might be baffled. I asked James, Mr. Top, and here's what he said. Um, it's my, my issue is not necessarily with vaccine. My issue is with overreach of the government and the federal government. That's uh, something that, is, that I find personally, uh, uh, it affects me personally, and uh, I don't think that I should have to um, accept a uh, procedure, medical or other, you know, otherwise. So he, he was one of those unvaccinated people that he, he was on unpaid leave because of it, and he's still mad about it. Now, are the police prepared this time? Last time the Emergencies Act was called in 
and we're still trying to figure out if it was justified. But joining me now is Ottawa's interim police chief, Steve Bell. He's in studio with me to talk about the next uh, protest. First of all, uh, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks very much. Happy to be here. So, first of all, what are you prepared for, I guess, is the, is the key thing. Uh, come Canada Day, usually a pretty big celebration uh, in the nation's capital. What are you preparing for? So yeah, I think it's a, I think that's a really important place to start because Canada Day is is an, a hugely important day for our country. It should be a day everyone has the opportunity to come and celebrate in our nation's capital if they want to do that. It's going to be that day this year. I can totally say that, and that's where our our preparation's starting. We know that there's some people that have indicated they want to come and protest. We're an open city. We host hundreds of protests a year, and you're able to come and protest anytime you want. It just needs to be lawful, and it can't uh, it can't overshadow the the great day that Canada Day is for us. So, how are you preparing? Because obviously, the big protest in February did not abide by any of those rules. They parked trucks everywhere. It was a whole different ball game. What are the police prepared for this time? Yeah, so you, I think what you saw in February was um, us um, pull together a response and learn a lot of lessons. We've had protests similar that are around the freedom movement since February, meaning mainly the Rolling Thunder in May, and you saw a very different response from us. We've been really clear. You can't have vehicle-based protests in our downtown core. There are exclusionary zones. You can expect to see that again on Canada Day, as well as all of the other measures we put in place to make sure protests are kept lawful. They say that they're going to begin on Canada Day or maybe June 30th when Mr. Top arrives and continue throughout the summer. Apparently they've got base camps. Do you know that? Do they have base camps? So, yeah, one of the things that we've been really actively doing is working with all of our municipal policing partners, RCMP, OPP, CSIS, National Security, to make sure that we get the the intelligence and information we can to, to gather uh, to make sure we have the right response. So we're aware um, of the indication that they could be longer protests, and we're prepared for those, and that's where our planning is coming into place now. Okay, so so when you say planning, is it Ottawa Police or RCMP involved? So it's all of those. Uh, we got great partners. Uh, we have fantastic working relationships with all of our municipal partners, OPP, RCMP, and they're coming to the table and helping to support us to make sure that we have the right level of staffing ready on Canada Day. Is the security... Is the threat level higher, Chief, as I speak to Ottawa's interim police chief, Steve Bell? So I'm going to tell you, yes. So the, the, the simple answer to that is yes. We, we, we take these very, very seriously. you, you got to remember the, that February, and you know you were down there, I saw you down there, um, had a huge impact on our community. People say there was no actual violence, but there was violence and trauma committed in our community. Honking horns, idling, uh, idling vehicles, people being accosted and intimidated in the streets. That isn't tolerable for our community and isn't tolerable for this police service. So, what do you, what do you say when the truckers say that's all exaggerated? We, there were no racists. We were peacefully protesting. We were feeding people. Um, that was all. There was just a couple bad apples, but it was just a uh, the police were heavy handed. So what I say to that is that's not what this community felt. That's not what the residents that live down in and around this area felt at all. Because I get out and I talk to them all the time. This had a major impact on the physical. Um, and perceived security of our of our community and had a, a huge impact and toll on the trauma that they felt during that. That can't happen again. I'm speaking to the interim police chief, Steve Bell. You know that there's a big controversy around the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Um, chief Slowly, who was the chief during that before he stepped down and you took over as interim chief, said he did not request 
the government to utilize the Emergencies Act. We're trying to figure that out. I don't know if you can comment on that, but interim chief, like, did the Ottawa police, were you, did they need the powers of the Emergencies Act? Were, you, were there as a request for more powers in some form? How did that work? So it, that's that's one of the things the inquiry is going to look at, and I think it's really important because beyond the need for the Emergencies Act, and, and as the chief that actually executed the authorities around that, I think it was absolutely needed to end that protest. Sorry, I, I want to, you think, I just want to, on this on the record, you were the chief when that happened. You think the, the powers that were given to you because of the Emergencies Act were absolutely needed. So I can absolutely say there was powers that were granted in that, be it the ability to stop people from going downtown. You, you experienced it. We had huge influx of pedestrians that can go downtown. You in Canada are allowed to protest on foot at the seat of parliament. In, if without the ability to limit or stop that, we had these large influxes of people that were unmanageable and would have been unsafe to take it down. So that coupled with the financial restrictions that were imposed through the Emergencies Act were very, very useful and beneficial and necessary for us to actually end that process. They were necessary. Did the police request it officially? That Did they say we need uh, some new powers or we need the Emergencies Act? So what, what happened as we led up to is there was a lot of discussions and a lot of input that we as police leaders were able to provide to the federal government. We didn't actively request it. What we did is identify some of our limitations and some of the resources that we would need uh, to be able to successfully end it. And that's, that's what you saw through the Emergencies Act. So you think it was a justifiable invocation of the Emergencies Act? Well, I don't think that's up for me to right. actually to decide. I can tell you as a police leader who was managing that operation, it was a hugely beneficial and necessary tool for us. Do you think that something's changed here? Like what's the mandates are down. What, what do you think is driving this kind of protest now, Chief? Well, so I, I don't know. It's, and it, it's a tough question for us. It's one we try and get to. We, we spend a lot of time having discussions with these, the protest leaders, trying to reach out to them and make sure that we can help man, help bring them into the city safely uh, I, I don't know what's driving it. What I do know is that it has an impact on the streets of Ottawa, and we can't allow that to happen. Come and protest. Come and celebrate Canada Day. Do it lawfully. What's your message to people who may want to celebrate Canada Day but are worried about the protests? Well, I can I can let them know that, that our main focus is on the celebratory um, events that are going to happen down there that day, and that's why we're going to have a security posture we do. It's going to be a safe, opening, welcoming, lawful place for people to come. Are the pro Some people uh, have alleged that the protests are now a hodgepodge of different things and that there are some hate groups involved. Others deny that. What is the police view on that? So the police view quite flatly is we don't actually tolerate hate incidents. We will investigate them all fully. To say it's a major thrust of it, I, I, I can't say that. What I can tell you is when these do come to town, uh, our Indigenous, racialized, uh, LGBTQ2S that live in the area that they come to feel threatened, feel intimidated by these groups because some of the words and actions that occur. That's not tolerable on our streets, and we'll investigate those. Last question. Have you requested extra resources potentially to, to deal with a summer of protest? So we're we're planning through Canada Day, up leading up to and beyond Canada Day, and if there are more resources needed through throughout the summer, we'll make those requests. And our partners have been amazing to come forward and assist us. Are you working with the leaders of this protest movement? Do you talk to them now? So we talk, every protest that occurs in our city, we try and reach out and work I with see. those, and we have made those reach outs and and are trying to set the expectations of what they can expect when they come here and what we expect from them. I really, that's Ottawa's interim police chief, Steve Bell. Sir, I hope it's a safe Canada Day and we protect the right to protest across this country. 
but do it safely. Thanks, Chief. We'll see you down there. We'll be right back. If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. By the way, we just made a fair bit of news there. The Ottawa Interim Police Chief, Steve Bell, who executed um, the mission against the um, and the operation against the protesters in February, saying we did not ask for the Emergencies Act. We needed it. It was essential Incredible. We've never heard that before. So that's news. We're going to play that back later. But that's that's a really interesting moment that just happened on this program. So I want you to mark that Ottawa police chief saying totally supports the Emergencies Act and the powers to invoke it. And we needed it. In the meantime, Canada spent four point nine billion dollars over six years. Yes, that's the promise to modernize our continental defense, basically the North American air defense system. The defense minister, Anand, uh, announced it yesterday. And actually, she said, we're going to spend $40 billion over the next two decades. She didn't break down how the money will be spent, but there will be three different new systems, a new northern approach to surveillance system, an Arctic over-the-horizon system for early warning radar coverage, a polar over-the-horizon. There will be a new system called Crossbow, which will be warning centers across the north, and then there'll be a space element. But will Canada join the U.S. Intercontinental Ballistic Defense Missile System? It's important because North Korea has done 31 missile tests in the last year. I spoke to the Defense Minister Anita Anand to find out the details of this. And I said, look, you're going to spend $4.9 billion over the next six years to modernize this. What exactly are you delivering? We are very pleased to announce the largest investment in NORAD and continental defense in four decades today. We are making sure that we are addressing a number of threats. We are investing in detection of threats. We are investing in decision-making from a technological standpoint. We're investing in infrastructure as well as research and development. So this is a full-scale, broad-based investment to ensure that Canadians are safe which is our top priority. Okay, uh, there, there's some aspects here. There's something called Arctic over the horizon radar, early warning, northern approaches, polar over the horizon, crossbow, and space. Can you explain what all those things will do and when they'll be operational? Sure thing, Evan. What we are ensuring that we are doing with the over-the-horizon radar systems is pushing further north our ability to detect threats and to surveil a broader airspace and that's exactly what the systems that you just mentioned enable us to do and that's why we're investing in them because on February 24th the world changed we saw military threat of a different nature in addition we have climate change we have economic threats and we have the need to ensure that we have a full-scale broad-based approach to detection of threats and that's why we are investing in these three different systems today as part of NORAD modernization and continental defense writ large okay let's get specific because there's the 4.9 billion over six years when does that money start to flow into norad immediately and and can you give us a timeline as to when any of these new systems will be operational 
Well, it's a good question. I want to emphasize that this is the unwritten chapter in strong, secure, engaged our defense policy from 2017. And it is the largest investment in four decades in NORAD and continental defense. And as such, Going on forward from today, we will lay out the timelines and the new capabilities and when they will come online. Until that time, for example, the North Warning System will remain in place. We awarded a contract to NASATUK Corporation in January for $600 million to ensure the maintenance and the operation of the North Warning System. So we are taking a leveled approach here. That is, existing capabilities will remain in place until such time right. as the new systems come online so that there is never a moment when Canadians are not safe. But but clearly the North warning system is not good enough. It can't really uh, handle hypersonic missiles. There's, as you know, terrain uh, detected um, cruise missiles now. There's emerging threats. North Korea conducted ballistic missile tests. The Wilson Center said North Korea has conducted 31 of those tests this year. I guess the question is between the old systems that are clearly incapable of tracking the modern technology now and, and when these new systems come online, what is that gap going to be when technically we're way out of date? Well, Evan, I think you're right to point to the increase in technological advances in terms of hypersonic missiles, in terms of cruise missiles, etc. But the reality is that Canada and the United States have been functioning together in terms of NORAD for decades, and that will continue as we work together to improve and revamp our systems to take into account new threats in an integrated way. And that's a term I want to stress, integrated. When we think about different types of missiles, we have to ensure that our approach to surveillance is integrated. And that's what today's announcement allows Canada to focus on an integrated approach to missile defense. And we will do that in conjunction with the United States. So you've got $4.9 billion over six years to modernize Nor NORAD. That comes out of budget 2022, but then you've got a 20-year plan with $40 billion in what I understand is new money. When will that money start being committed? When would we know that about that $40 billion? We are very, very enthusiastic today to be able to announce not only the $4.9 billion from budget 2022, but also the $40 billion over 20 years, the largest investment in continental defense that this country has made in 40 years. Uh, that money is going to be allocated. It is fully funded in terms of our plan going forward, and we will allocate it to the various systems, some of which you've mentioned already, but the various systems that allow us to fulfill the four principles that the United States and Canada agreed to last summer, situational awareness, command and control, aerospace surveillance, and research and development. Those are going to be the driving principles going forward for the allocation of the funds, including the $40 billion that you mentioned. I mean, you spoke about Canada's partner with the U.S especially when it comes to defense. The U.S. does have a program in place to defend against intercontinental ballistic missiles, the very kind of thing North Korea is testing. Ottawa opted out of that U.S. ballistic missile defense in 2005. You mentioned that you were open a month ago to joining the U.S. on ballistic missile defense. I thought actually that may be part of your announcement today. Are you, is Canada going to join ballistic missile defense with the U.S.? 
our policy on that respect has not changed. We will continue to evaluate the appropriate policies going forward for Canada in terms of defence writ large. But I will say that an integrated approach to defence, the one that we are taking, is more and more important because as we are seeing and as you said yourself there are so many different types of missiles and new technologies that we need to be cognizant of we need to have an integrated system um one of the elements uh there's the, the over the horizon there's crossbow and then there's space um a lot of uh the modern day space is called low Earth orbit satellite systems. Uh, they're both for consumers, but the military uses them because they have a different latency or lag time. Um, is Canada's military investing in low Earth orbit satellite security with the United States uh, as part of this? As I laid out in my speech today, we are investing in a range of capabilities, Evan, uh, from aerospace surveillance uh, to detection writ large to new technologies in terms of our ability to make decisions quickly uh, to additional research and development. Uh, and so this massive investment of $40 billion over 20 years, which is fully funded, is going to see Canada being able to invest in a range of new capabilities in partnership with the United States for the purposes of continental defense writ large. So that is your defense minister, Anita Anand. So here are the questions you need to ask. <clears throat> I think it's good that we have new defense. We need this defense. The problem is, let's be clear. We need details on when the money's coming, how it will be spent, and how long the gap where we are vulnerable right now. We are vulnerable. Missiles can get through right now. When will the gap be closed? We'll take a break. We got a great story coming up and your calls on the Emergencies Act. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to the uh, big show here. I want to get your calls on this. Look, there's a lot of debate, and there should be, and there's legally required to be an investigation about the use of the Emergencies Act to stop the trucker protest back in February. And it's relevant not just because I think the government is bungling their explanations on this. And as I say, in classic fashion, snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory but because there could be more protests coming in the nation's capital for Canada Day, as the protesters say they want to come back. Now, I want your views about whether you think the government was justified in using the Emergencies Act. And I'll tell you why, and you can call me at 1-855-633-1010, one 633 or 71010. Now, here's the key. The government has said, yeah, we're, we, we needed it. And Marco Mendicino, and I've been grilling him, the, uh, the minister in charge, said he was acting on the advice of police. The problem is the RCMP and the Ottawa police both say we never asked for it. And then when Christian Freeland and another minister, Bill Blair, appeared before committee 
they didn't have any written notes. Oh, really? You just took verbal? It was crazy. It was pathetic. We didn't take notes on the advice we got, but we got advice. Come on. And then Bill Blair actually contradicted Marco Mendicino and said, you know, actually, we no one requested it. I'd be surprised if they did. But now I just had the uh, interim police chief of, uh, of Ottawa. Now, remember, the Ottawa police chief slowly, in the midst of this, let this thing get out of control and was pushed down, resigned, stepped away, whatever you want to call it. And his deputy, who's now the interim police chief, Steve Bell, was there. And he's the guy who actually was in charge of the operation for the Ottawa police chief element. And I just spoke to him and he made some news because I asked him about the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which is what the National Inquiry is. And I asked him specifically, did the Ottawa police need the powers in the Emergencies Act? I'm asking because it gave them very controversial powers. Did you need powers? Was there a request for more powers because you couldn't handle it? Here's what Steve Bell, interim police chief of Ottawa, said. So that's that's one of the things the inquiry is going to look at. And I think it's really important because beyond the need for the Emergencies Act and, and as the chief that actually executed the authorities around that, I think it was absolutely needed to end that protest. I think it was absolutely needed to end the protest. So now on the record, Steve Bell is saying the Emergencies Act was needed. OK, now um, I wanted him to say uh you know, you think the powers were given to you were needed. So these are extraordinary powers. You needed them. Here's what he said. So I can absolutely say there was powers that were granted in that, be it the ability to stop people from going downtown. You, you experienced it. We had huge influx of pedestrians that can go downtown. You in Canada are allowed to protest on foot at the seat of parliament. In, if without the ability to limit or stop that, we had these large influxes of people that were unmanageable and would have been unsafe to take it down. So that, coupled with the financial restrictions that were, in, were imposed through the Emergencies Act, were very, very useful and beneficial and necessary for us to actually end that. The financial restrictions and the other powers, useful and necessary, absolutely. Now, I just wanted to clarify one last thing, and I'd love your calls on this because this is new information to me. one 1010 or 71010. I said, but let's be clear. Did the police officially request the use of the Emergencies Act? So what, what happened as we led up to is there was a lot of discussions and a lot of input that we as police leaders were able to provide to the federal government. We didn't actively request it. What we did is identify some of our limitations and some of the resources that we would need uh, to be able to successfully end it. And that's, that's what you saw through the Emergencies Act. I just find this fascinating because I'm trying, like parliamentarians, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it. And you are hearing this first. That's exclusive stuff for you. John in Mississauga, what's up? Evan, I feel like this is a super typical liberal scandal. They did everything that was right, but they felt they needed added justification other than doing what was right. So they did kind of the typical liberal thing. They lied in a kind of, it it should have been a white lie, but the truth is you don't lie about what the police have told you. It was good that they did it. They should have done it. And they should have just done it under the grounds of Ottawa police, cowardly let this happen ontario police cowardly let this happen if they don't want to do their jobs and protect the country from these terrorists then we'll have to do it and they did it and it worked 
It's just another one of those annoying things that liberals do where they do everything right except for their messaging. They come out and they do a dumb lie they didn't have to do. Yeah. Of course, the, the, it's sorry, interesting, John. John, first of all, I appreciate your point. Look, the, when you are invoking powers for the first time, when you are taking away people's civil liberties, when there is a major moment here, whether it's the blockade in Ottawa or at the Ambassador Bridge, which, by the way, didn't need the Emergencies Act to be resolved, but the Ontario emergency, it was a state of emergency in Ontario, you better be clear, transparent, and understandable to everybody. And saying we took the advice of police, we listened to police when the police said we didn't request it, but they needed the help, that, I'm with you, they but they're bungling that, and they've got to be clear on it. And I appreciate the call, John, uh, because clarity matters here. And there, here's the Ottawa police chief telling us for the first time, I needed it. It was essential. He used the word necessary. Adam, what's up? Yeah, hi. This will change no one's mind. The people who hate Trudeau will hate Trudeau. Everyone else doesn't care about this, except for the Conservative Party. So it's really... Uh, as I like to say, kabuki theater. This is all done for people who think, you know, civil liberties, blah, blah, blah. But nobody else cares. This is just uh, being put on for the sake of being put on. here's Here's where I disagree with you, to be candid, and I appreciate the call. Here's where you and I diverge. I don't think it's kabuki theater, and I don't think it's civil liberties, blah, blah, blah. I think civil liberties matter. I think when any government decides to infringe on and exerflex their muscles and infringe on our civil liberties, it's a big deal. It's a big red line. doesn't mean that it's not always justified. There's always a balance between security and liberties. I get it. But if you cross the line as the government, it's a big deal. So I don't think it's theater. I think we got to be pressing the government and understanding what happened. I like the fact that once you invoke it, it's by law required to have an an inquiry into this. We need to know. So governments in the future cannot willy-nilly infringe. Doesn't mean I'm not saying it's justified or not, but I don't think it's kabuki theater. And I think people do care because it sets a precedent. So I, I think the conservatives are right to do what they're supposed to do, hold the government to account. Now, whether they agree on whether it was useful or not is a whole different purpose. That's why I'm talking to people like the police chief, because he's not political. I'm just trying to get the facts so you and I can make the right uh, or come to our own conclusions. Uh, Margaret and Whitby, what's up? Uh, thanks, Evan, for taking my call. And it, uh, people do care. Uh, I agree with you on that. And as for Steve Bell, I disagree with him because um, the chief of police before him had asked for more police officers. I think yeah. they gave him 200. They, so what was able to clear it out in a matter of hours was that they had more Mar- police Margaret, officers. I, I'm, I'm hitting a break. They didn't need to use the Emergency Act. Right. Okay, you don't think people- it was necessary. Sorry, Margaret, I'm cutting you off because I've got a break coming. Thanks, Margaret. I'll be right back. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. It is a parent's worst nightmare. Derek Lentz and his wife, Jill lost their 17-year-old son to suicide in Manitoba. How did Daniel die? He was a victim of a growing, horrific global sextortion scheme. That's right. They target teenage boys. Daniel accepted a message request, which seemed to be from an attractive young woman on Snapchat. Minutes later, 
He was being blackmailed, and within three hours, he took his own life. Now, Derek and Jill are warning parents as well. Joining me now is Derek Lentz. He's from Pilot Mound, Manitoba. And as I said, his son Daniel uh, died by suicide after the sexual exploitation back in February. Mr. Lentz, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we get into anything, um, first of all, we are deeply sorry about your, the loss of your son and our, send you our sympathies and condolences. Um, obviously, just a horrific shock that, 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 that this kind of thing would happen. And, and can, you, can you describe how quickly this happened? Yeah, hi there. Um, yeah, so from what I've been told uh, from the Child Exploitation Department is uh, the uh, messages started at about 6.30 on a, in the evening, and uh, by 9 o'clock that night, 9.30, uh, he had taken his life. So it was, you know, three hours or thereabouts. So it happened very fast. 17-year-old great kid, Daniel. Yeah, he was a good guy. He was, uh, you know, friendly and happy, and he worked hard at school. And he was, uh, you know, he played hockey and he downhill skied, and he was a lifeguard. He was taking training to uh, teach the little kids their lessons. Uh, you know, he worked. He worked hard to save up his money to buy a car, and he was responsible. You know, he researched everything for his car and made a decision. And, he, uh, we didn't have to worry about him at night, you know. He didn't stay out late, and very rarely he'd be out, you know, into the night. He'd go visit his friends and come home. Uh, yeah, he was he was likable. He was funny, uh, kind of serious about himself. Uh, you know, like they took things serious with his schoolwork and his researching his car, and right. uh, was in, looking into his university or post-secondary education. So that was something that was occupying some time, but yeah, he was a nice, nice all around. Nice all around kid, hockey, school, cars, just what you want. Good boy. And, and then to get trapped into this just, and it happens quick, right? Like we all get these scams hitting us up all the time, sir. And, and so what do they do? Can you explain to people listening like how it works because it's it, it's that damaging that quickly. Um, how do they hook these guys in? Uh, well, these people that do this are professional uh, con, or, con artists, basically, uh, and they know the demographic they're targeting. So the teen boys, what they do is, what I've come to find out was what they do is they uh, pretend to be a young woman, you know, attractive young woman, they send a message and uh, start up a conversation and try to get the young teen to uh, engage with them. Sometimes it takes days, sometimes it takes minutes, sometimes it takes a long time, but so they can keep at it and they're very persistent. And uh, once they get them on the hook, um, they get them, oftentimes they'll uh, get them to trust them and then uh, it leads to, you know, do you want to exchange Nudes is what the teens say, and uh, once you do that when, with one of these uh, people, then that's where it it all goes downhill fast. They just lure them in. They give them a pick. They say, give it, send one in return. Next thing they know, once that happens, then what? They say, now, if you and they, they get them to send some compromising photos, and now, basically, it's, okay, give me money, or we'll spread this around. 
yeah, yeah, they say now, you know, you've got to pay us so much money or else we're going to send this to all your friends. Uh, sometimes they'll even have been on your Instagram account or other platform and they have a list of your friends so they can show you, you know, this, we have, we know all your friends, we're going to send it to your friends, we're going to send it to your grandma. Sometimes they'll say, we know where you live, you know, the younger kids, they can threaten the kid's family and uh, they have multiple ways of, of uh, manipulating these kids and uh, they know what to do. Uh, once they have the picture, they say, we need some money. If you don't pay us, this is what we're going to do. Oftentimes the kids will try to pay whatever they can. Uh, as soon as you do that, that just ramps it up. Yeah. They say, we need more, you know, we need this, we need to, you know, we're not, we're still going to do it if you don't pay us more. And at that point they don't have any more. Mm. And so they're kind of, uh, at their wits end. And and the shame, like you just think, yeah, the kids, kids the kids feel, feel trapped because they're ashamed, they're embarrassed, and they don't know where to go. And I just, yeah, I, I don't know if, if even our generation understands how how frightening that could be so quickly. You know what I mean, uh, Derek? Yeah, yeah. A teenage boy, you know, at that point in their life, uh, you know, there's a lot going on there. They have a lot that they haven't figured out, and. Uh, you know, that's why they target them, and that's exactly what they prey on is the kids' shame and the kids' embarrassment, and, uh, you know, the, they're just so embarrassed yeah. that they can't even think straight, and, and that's why you don't hear of this a lot, is because people that this happened to, of course, they don't want to say anything because they're super embarrassed about it and ashamed. Of course. Angry at themselves, and, uh, you know, they don't want their friends at school to find out what happened, and that's why it's... Uh, you know, it's not a thing that was uh, commonly heard of. Mm. The RCMP's National Child Exploitation Crime Center says that it's like 52,000 plus complaints a year and it's going up. I mean, um, CyberTip, which is a line to report online child sex abuse, 20 reports a month. Like this stuff is going up. This is a problem. I mean, tragically, you and your wife are trying to raise awareness of this because you've experienced this firsthand in the worst possible way. How prevalent is this stuff, sir? Oh, uh, yeah, it's, it's very, uh, you know, it's out there and it happens a lot. Uh, just, you know, in the last few months, you know, I've heard of people that we know, people that we don't know, they've been coming to us and saying, you know, this happened to us. Um, you know, people, a lot of them didn't end in the same situation, of course, with the same result, but, even in the two two months after uh, my son, there was two in our little community that two other kids in the same area that it happened to, you know, and we we're we're a small community, and that's just two that we know of, but it happens uh, all across everywhere. It's 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 just a thing that it's out there, and uh, I think the more the parents can try to get through their kids, the better off we'll be. Mm. Do they ever catch the guy? Is there any chance? That the, the uh, guy that tried to sexploit your child that did, that you can go bust this. Uh, you know I can't what? even they, use the word. Yeah, you know, they they told me straight up, he said, this, it's very rare for them to track down the person, uh, mostly because, you know, oftentimes it'll be overseas somewhere in some country like, uh, uh, like Yemen or Nigeria or somewhere like that where they don't have, you know, great, relations with Canada government where, you know, the extradi extradition, sorry, extradition laws aren't, uh, mm. you know, if they, they said if it came down to, 
a handful of countries like maybe the U.S. or England or something like that, then there's a chance that it might uh, it might be able to find somebody and and. Uh, you know, but they get away with it, basically. That's the problem. These yeah, these, they're killers, and they get away with it. Well, that's what I've been telling people. Uh, you know, they they kill these kids. They don't care. You know, they might get a couple hundred bucks or whatever they get. And they, if that one lives or dies, then that's fine with them. They move on to the next one, you know, for their next couple hundred bucks. So it's just uh, it's a sad thing. Derek Lentz, I, 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 I just can't tell you how important it is for you to raise this, um, our, our love and thoughts to you and Jill. And as you um, talk about Daniel and, and you use his memory for something uh, to help others, which, I, which I'm sure he would, he would appreciate. Thank you, sir. Um, this is not easy, but it's important, and, and, and you have my heart. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks for having us on and uh, helping us out with this, and uh, we hope that it can help other people, and you know, we don't want parents to have to go through this ever, so thanks a lot. Yeah, if you need anything, let us know. Okay, good, thanks. That's courage. We'll be right back. Where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. The committee into the January 6th insurrection is going on. This is uh, part four of the serialized series, as the uh, New York Times podcast calls it. And today they are focusing on how Trump tried to pressure election officials to overturn the election. Last one, they focused on how he tried to pressure uh, Vice President Pence to overturn it. Previously, we heard never-before testimony from close, close allies of Donald Trump, including the Attorney General, Bill Barr, whose Republican credentials have never been questioned, who told the January 6th committee back on June 13th, that he had warned Donald Trump that they'd investigated all these allegations of fraud, all these allegations, and that they were literally B.S. He was asked by the uh, interviewer, what's, you know, what's your evidence of fraud? And he said more people voted in Philadelphia than there were voters. And that was absolute rubbish. Barr said that, look, um, Trump didn't care about the facts. There was never there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. Now this matters because this is the, the most powerful democracy in the world. And Larry Haas is the former White House official, author and a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. And, and, you know, this is so fraught with partisanship, uh, Larry Haas, and I appreciate you joining us. I think a lot of our yep. listeners across this country want to know um, what this uh, um, inquiry, what this um, committee has actually proven so far. I know it's made up of Republicans and Democrats. What has stood out as the most important uh, parts of this case, Mr. Haas? I think the coordinated nature of the effort all of these different strands that have come together, they're not 
disparate. They were all part of a whole. And the whole was a very in-depth, well-coordinated attempted coup by pressuring the vice president not to accept the uh, results from the different states, not to record them. Uh, the pressure on the state officials that we're going to hear about today in terms of changing votes, finding mysterious votes elsewhere, uh, the nature of the discussions that you mentioned yourself, uh, top officials telling President Trump that all of this is nonsense in terms of these allegations and him not caring, him and a small core of people very close to him, not White House officials, but those on the outside, the lawyer, John Eastman, the uh, lawyer and former New York mayor, Rudy Giuliani. So I think the level and the breadth and scope of this conspiracy uh, really stands out. And the blatancy of it, the, the, the fact that there is now no doubt that Donald Trump knew that he lost the election and knew that he was coordinating an illegal effort to stay in power, and he and his acolytes uh, pursued it anyway. Mm. And, and I'm speaking to Larry Haas, a former White House official. What has been new? Some folks say, oh, yawn, yawn, the Democrats keep beating the drum. They're going to lose in the midterms anyway. This is why they're focused on this. This is just a partisan exercise in anti-Trumpism because they've lost their minds on it. But what has been new material evidence that you might think, wait, stop. If we can press pause on partisanship for a minute, this is fundamentally important. What new evidence has kind of rises above partisanship? And, and becomes consequential? Well, first of all, um, one has to rise above partisanship. I mean, the fact of the matter is that there are going to be millions and millions of Americans who are so committed to Donald Trump that they, they want to dismiss any conceivable criticism of him. And that's just the nature of things. We're not, the committee is not necessarily aiming at those people. The committee wants uh, people who are persuadable in the middle, people who move back and forth between Democrats and Republicans when it comes to candidates to, you know, really take this seriously and understand. In terms of what would make people um, sit up and take notice, um, I think uh, the fact that Donald Trump was told so often and by so many people who had served him so loyally, including the person you mentioned, the Attorney General of the United States, Bill Barr, yes. who is really a quintessential Republican, long history with the party, and really someone who has spoken out so vehemently uh, against what he considers the Democratic agenda on the policy front. And nevertheless, he told the president in no uncertain terms. And he wasn't the only one. I mean, after all, uh, Ivanka Trump, the president's daughter, has testified that after talking to Bill Barr, she was convinced. We already know that Jared Kushner, her husband and a leading official in the, uh, in the Trump White House, was convinced. Virtually, virtually everyone in official positions uh, in the White House and elsewhere uh, who was in a position to talk to the president, talk mm. to the president, 
and told him the God's honest truth. And yet he either did not have the capacity to accept it, or I suspect, and others do as well, that he accepted it full well, but he attempted the coup anyway because he did not care about the rule of law. Larry Haas, former White House uh, official, author, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. A couple things struck me, uh, Larry Haas. One, the um, not just the Bill Barr testimony, but the testimony about the use of fundraising, and it was supposed to the money was supposed to be used to fight uh, for to overturn the election, but essentially was funneled into private, you know, Trump organizations. I thought that was stunning. Um, the emergence yes. of Mike Pence. Um, no friend of the Democrats who the Democrats praise for doing the right thing. Um, he was close to being overtaken by the mob. I thought that his actions pushing back against president were pretty extraordinary. But what happens now? Like, where does this all lead to? Will there be any charges? I mean, if he did willfully try to overthrow an election illegally uh, and if he's held accountable or responsible, what now? Could there be any criminal charges? Okay, so it's a little bit complicated, and there are different calculations that are going to have to be made. And I would um, suggest to your readers, that they, to your listeners, that they open up the New York Times today and they look at the op-ed uh, by the former uh, Republican, uh, I, I believe, White House counsel uh, by, the, by the name of Jack Goldsmith, in which he lays out the dynamics that the attorney general probably right now is mulling. But um, keep in mind the following. We have the January 6th investigation by the committee. We have the Justice Department by itself conducting an, an investigation. We have the committee and the Justice Department beginning negotiations in terms of what the committee will turn over to the Justice Department to assist in the department's investigation. There is really clear evidence of criminality here on the part of the president and others around him. But that is not the only consideration for the attorney general. He has to think about, can I prove this case? What is the magnitude of implication for the Justice Department to file criminal charges against a former president? Will I be setting the press precedent that right. has very unfortunate political uh, ramifications? Yeah. Will every uh, you know opponent now try to use the legal system for presidents that they don't like? And these these are very very tough. Uh, it's calls. a high bar. And, but but let, yeah, let's be is, candid. It is. January 6th it's was a, a high bar. High bar. Uh, Larry, yes, sadly, I, I got to hit a break here. Larry Haas, a former White oh. House official. Sir, I, can't, I, I really appreciate you putting this into perspective for me. Uh, I do have to take a break. I'll be right back. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You know, I love to talk about uh, the future's coming, so you got to future-proof. You don't want to freak out. We did a whole special segment on artificial intelligence and what's coming. 
And now the question is, what about robots? Yeah. What about robots, not just for things like the military, but what about robots, I don't know, to rescue people? Maybe you saw Transformers or maybe you saw RoboCop. Well, so did Alejandro Ramirez Serrano, who uh, basically works at the Schulich School of Engineering at the University of Calgary and is really, really, really doing some cool things in the unmanned vehicles Robotarium Lab. I, I just love the title, and he joins me now. How are you, Alejandro? I'm really good. Thank you, Evan, for having us. Oh, my God. So me. cool. Yeah, I'll have you and your team. I know you're speaking on behalf of a team. Tell me about the rescue robots. What are they? Well, they are basically robots of different sizes, shapes, and functionalities. Uh, and the goal is to enable uh, uh, first responders uh, to go into hazardous conditions, right? So the, the robots are sometimes are multi-leg robots, sometimes are flying robotic systems uh, like drones uh, that are able to penetrate confined spaces and wiggle and maneuver inside those spaces to find victims, assess the situations, and so on. So, so describe a situation as that that a human might be in that you could replace them with a rescue robot. Well, uh, maybe the first comment will be that. Uh, our goal is not really to replace uh, first responders. It's just to provide them with tools to enhance their their, their activities, right? Uh, just because machines and humans are, for this, from our point of view, are complementary, they will enhance each other's abilities and, and uh, enhance the mission. Uh, but in terms of the robots, uh, the robots are are systems that are mechanical systems that have motors, actuators, a number of sensors to perceive the spaces sense uh, noise, sound, gases, uh, all those things. And, of course, uh, we need to control them. And in many cases, we use, uh, as you mentioned, artificial intelligence just because we don't really have a recipe that we can follow to tell a machine on how to penetrate a, a chaotic space like a collapsed building or a mine that uh, collapsed uh, and guide them on how to perform the mission. So the robots will have to make decisions on the fly depends on what they perceive, see, smell, and so on. It's incredible. So so tell how smart are these? Like, are they just kind of like we've seen before, you get a joystick in your work, or are they actually doing some artificial intelligence analysis? Yeah, well, right, right now, right now at, at this stage of developmental work, it's a combination. Uh, some of the tasks uh, are are commanded by humans, like for example, go to point A or go to point B. But in some cases, they are, they are, the robots are making decisions. Uh, for example, assessing the situation, uh, if there's poisonous gases or explosive, uh, uh, explosive conditions, they might have either to report to the user so that they can make a decision. But in some cases, uh, reporting to the user might be time consuming and that decision has to be made uh, in a split second. So that's where we embed uh, artificial intelligence for the robots to, to be able to make those decisions and prevent further damage or save victims that might otherwise not be able to do. Right, like you may be able to have a robot who's actually assessing a situation faster than a rescue operator. So they're working alongside them, you know, a collapsed building or something like that. That's what you're looking for. That's correct. How and far again, away have you are? Like, how close are you to that? Well, we're 
it's difficult to to the future to to predict, right? But according to our estimations, uh, we believe that in probably uh, between five and seven years, these robots will be ready to be deployed and be making decisions in real time. Right now, we can actually deploy robots uh, to with certain limitations. Uh, so this technology is here and it's being used and is useful, uh, but they need to be enhanced to be able to perform missions and achieve a task uh, much, much faster. What's the future, Alejandro, of robot? Like, people think, okay, artificial intelligence, but look, put us forward in your view in, you know, sort of a decade. Where will we see robots functioning? Like, what, what does the future look like? Well, I think uh, as, as we have seen in the... Um, in society, robots are being uh, developed for a number of, of uh, different missions and tasks, right? So I think in the future, we will see robots uh, in our kitchens, uh, helping us with mundane tasks, uh, helping our police officers, helping our armed forces, helping the energy industry, uh, just because, uh, you know, humanity has a number of uh, great challenges, you know, hunger, um, water supply, energy. And I don't think we need uh, we have the manpower to cope with all these um, uh, challenges. So I think in the future, robots are going to be enhancing our abilities to cope and solve these challenges, while at the at the same time enabling us to focus on other more critical aspects. Uh, just because once again, machines and humans are are a totally different um, um, set of creatures, right? And I don't think there's a, in the not there will be no time in the near future where machines replace humans, or or when my, humans actually cannot live without machines. Yeah, it, it's a shared experience. Alejandro Ramirez Serrano, you've been working on these rescue robots for seven years. You're a professor of mechanical engineering at UFC, and just given us a little peek into the future, which is really cool. By the way, just before I let you go, like, has anyone bought these robots yet? Are, are you are you lending them out to a rescue service? Well, right now we're collaborating with uh, with uh, urban search and rescue teams here in Canada, and right now we're getting them ready uh, to, at some point, uh, having them uh, test them, assess them, uh, give us feedback so that we can enhance them and, and make them better. Uh, so we're collaborating with a number of organizations and agencies uh, to test these things. And once again, the goal will be to deploy them uh, when a strike or or, or or disaster strikes, right? Very uh, cool. These are, these are the types of tools that uh, you want to have and you never want to use, right? Yeah, you're, you, but you need them. If you need them, you need them, and you need them fast. Uh, thank you, Alejandro. I really appreciate you joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for the, for the call. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I love this stuff. I, I think all of us need to be aware of what's coming, right? I, I hate being on the caboose of the innovation train. And on this program, we're trying to always give, to give you a little peek in the future. By the way, I always credit, we read that story first in uh, the Canadian press. So they published uh, the story about these robots. So hat tip to the great Canadian press. We love that uh, service. Uh, But I I wanted you to meet Alejandro because, like, imagine seven years, he's working in a lab in Calgary. Now this stuff's coming. So maybe there'll be some kind of rescue robot um, in a fire. Collapsed building, car, I don't know. But these unmanned vehicles are very, very cool. And it's the future. And once they get some AI, more sophisticated AI, they'll be able to analyze it. So, again, this raises so many questions about 
you know, what jobs will be there? Like if you're, if you're listening right now, you're thinking maybe I'd like to be, I don't know, a radiologist. Is there going to be an AI program that reads x-rays better? There already is, frankly. A journalist, the AI's writing things. Can you trust it? Self-driving cars are a big issue. But there's been problems with that in terms of responsibility. But there's problems with people in terms of responsibility, right? Drinking and driving. What do you trust more? A self-driving car that maybe has some problems or, I don't know, total strangers hurling around in a metal box at 120, maybe drink. Like, we live with uncertainty. And then, of course, there's the question of what happens if they maximize their own self-interest and learn and they don't want to shut off. So, so look, there's opportunities and threats. But the bottom line is we are about to coexist on a much more significant, like we already are, let, let's not mistake it. Machines are everywhere. Replacing workers. But we're about to coexist on a significantly different level. Now we're going to go from machines to nature. The coolest bird story that you've ever heard next. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You know what's great about this program, folks, when you have an eagle specialist? Like, you think, I am just going to um, have a guy to call when there's a good old eagle story. So you remember we had the eagle story about the Stellar's eagle, this Russian eagle that was spotted in Canada. It was super rare, this giant Russian eagle. I'm like, gosh, that's crazy. And then this guy, Nick Lund, was amazing. He's science and nature writer, known online as the birdist, and he's the author of the ultimate bi- uh, biography of Earth and the ABA field guide to birds of Maine. And, and he came on, he's like, oh, I got to tell you about the, 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 the Russian eagle. I'm like, wow, that's great. And now we have another eagle. We've got a, a story about an eagle, and, and credit to As It Happens. They also did this story. Thanks, uh, As It Happens. An eagle who snatched a baby hawk to eat it. And then something happened on the way to dinner. And we got to bring Nick here. <laughs> Welcome back, eagle specialist Nick. I love that you're our eagle story specialist. <laughs> I'm, I'm not an eagle specialist anywhere else except for the Evan Solomon show. That's I know, which is great, right? Like it's all birds, <laughs> but we just, and you know, what's funny after we spoke, I was in, I was walking my dog in the forest with my wife and we were looking for a barred owl because there's this barred yeah. owl, that, which I love the barred owl. And, and yes. I've been looking for this barred owl for years and we saw two days in a row, the barred owl, they're huge and beautiful. And then the next yeah. day we saw a, Bald eagle in Ottawa flying over. I was so happy. Welcome to the world of birds, my friend. Once you start looking, you'll see him everywhere. I will say this. And on my morning run this morning along the river, I saw a pileated woodpecker. Yes. I love those things. They're beautiful. Yes. Yes. Tons of cool birds around. And it's actually a great time to talk because we talked in November when this big Stellar's eagle had just flown 
I think it was in Quebec or New Brunswick at that point. Yeah, New Brunswick. But yeah. A ton of a ton of stuff has happened since then. Okay, give like, us that. So before we get to the the, the dinner story, okay. let's get to the stellar. Update us on our old friend, the Stellar's Eagle. I feel like it needs an update. So first of all, this Stellar Sea Eagle, a very one of the most endangered eagles in the world, also the largest eagle in the world. It's huge, and it lives only in like Siberia and uh, like northern Japan and the Korea. And for whatever reason, one of these giant stellar seagulls just took up and started flying across North America. And it was first seen in Alaska and then down in Texas, of all places, and then up on the rescue in Quebec and then down in uh, New Brunswick. And then it disappeared. We talked then and we were like, who knows what's going to happen next? And we were joking. We're like, maybe it's going to come down to near where I live in Maine, the United States. Guess what? A month later, it did. It showed no. up like in like like twenty miles from where I live. Are you yeah. serious? Well, yeah, you know, we, but because like we got a call, months. we got a call from the eagle, and it was like, "Hi, first time caller, long time listener." No, so so <laughs> yeah. what happened to this? So the the stellar sea eagle came to Maine. Yeah, it showed up, and so this thing is just it does whatever it wants. It just flies. It's like, hey, I'm sick of this. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to Massachusetts. Done. <laughs> I'm gonna fly to Maine. Done. It hung out in Maine for like two months. It was this big national story down here. I was up there all the time. Did you see it? So when you saw it, Nick, like what was it like to see? Oh, my God. I mean, so it first showed up in Massachusetts in the States, which is only like a two-hour drive. I I abandoned my family. I abandoned my responsibilities and immediately drove down to see it. And it's just like this. you got to understand, this is a bird that has never been seen anywhere near here. This is a bird that people like me dream about seeing in the wild and never thought we did because I'm not booking a ticket to Siberia anytime soon. And then all of a sudden, boom, there it is on a tree. And the thing that strikes you when you see it is how much bigger it is than bald eagles. So bald eagles are huge, right? Yeah. Um, and when you see one, you, you, you stop in your tracks and you're like, look at that thing. It's giant. Uh, stellar seagull, it, it, it feels like, like half as big again as a bald eagle. So like, wow! Like, like it's it's these... it's terror. It's like it's even for someone like you. You know, like when you yeah. see like a great blue heron, you're like, oh, it's like a pterodactyl. This eagle kind of dwarfs the bald eagle. It's just a monster. Yeah, this thing is like. There's a little part in the back of my human brain being like, this might want to get me. Like, it doesn't want to eat me. You know what I mean? <laughs> and if you see one, it probably could. Its bill is the size of like my arm. Oh and uh, it's just impressive. It was so cool. And where so, is it now? It down, so it was down here in Maine until about February. And then it took off and people said, God, who knows where it's going to be? It was seen in Nova Scotia again. And then like uh, the last I heard was about a week ago. It was seen uh, on the Avalon Peninsula in, in Newfoundland. So oh. still alive, still going. This wow. Thing. Newfoundland. That's, and, a, uh, that's so good. Okay. Uh, we've got four start. minutes. Okay. So we're just going to keep okay, following. Sorry. But so in the meantime, these smaller and now significantly less prestigious bald eagles near Nanaimo, B.C., they will go after a baby red-tailed hawk. What happened on the way to dinner here? Very cool. This is a story. I've never heard anything like this. A bald eagle, uh, as they do, attacked a red-tailed hawk nest, grabbed a baby nestling red-tailed hawk, and flew it back to the eagle's nest to try to feed its eagle chicks. But on the way, as soon as it like dropped it in the nest, the baby red-tailed hawk started begging for food. It just it just started doing its own baby bird thing. And the eagle, instead of tearing it apart, said, "All right, here's some food," and is now raising this hawk in its no, nest as no. one of its own nestlings. It's yeah. the craziest thing. So I, I've never heard of this happening in, in anywhere. And this, you know, this does not happen very often. So there are other species of birds that will sometimes trick 
um, other birds into raising their young, but I've never heard of it happening with eagles. But now this hawk, this hawk is being fed and cared for by the by the eagle and is like one of the family. It's pretty amazing. It's so great. Now, it is on Gabriola Island. I took my kids to Gabriola Island. My wife and no I did. Way. Yeah, like a couple of years ago. It's an amazing place. It's very cool. Like you kind of, you know, uh, you know, it's between Vancouver Island and uh and basically uh, a Vancouver. But but yep. so so who, have they ever done this has normally an eagle would eat that bird, right? They would feed it their yes. to their eaglets. So wh- what do you think's happening here? What explains well, this? You know, um, baby birds, just like just like humans. I mean, baby baby birds call out, and there's something instinctual in parent birds to feed that mouth. They baby birds open their gape, and they have this bright colors, and and the instinct of a parent bird is to start shoving food in there. And so I think like the amazing probability of all of a sudden this baby uh, hawk is down there, and just probably at the right exact moment, it opened its mouth in the right exact way, and the mom was just the mom eagle was just like, ah, okay, I can't. Let's just do this. Oh and it worked. It just triggered some sort of instinct to feed instead of kill. And now there's a there's a webcam of it. People can actually watch this. I, I like. Are you as a birder, Nick, watching this? Because there's a webcam footage of the eagle's nest on Gabriola Island where he's where the eagle's feeding the baby red-tailed hawk. It's amazing, and it'll be amazing to see what happens because eagles and red-tailed hawks do not typically eat the same thing as babies. It might work out, but over time, red-tailed hawks generally eat you know rodents and and things like that, whereas uh, eagles or eat more fish. Oh my so God. it'll be interesting to see and watch this webcam to see how it how it grows and if it makes it and how it how it works. But there's so hope. far, so good. Nick, there's hope. There's hope. If, if 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 a if a, if a bald eagle and a red tailed hawk can get along, the world can get along. If the the Russian <laughs> yeah. eagle can do a U.S. tour and everyone loves it, folks, the birds are showing us the way. What are we doing? Nick Lund, you're the That's best. Right. Come on back. Come on back anytime. You know, hey, like if, you got a good bird story for us. You're great. And and get back to your own family. You know, stop. I will. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. You're great. Nick, seriously, that's Evan, awesome. Take care. Great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Great to reconnect. How great is that? By the way, wouldn't you want to be as passionate about anything as Nick is about birds? That's why he is a friend of the show. All right. I will. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on Power Play tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern on CTV News Channel. That one was for the birds.